0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. So who's getting pinched? I'm not because I'm wearing green.
1: Uh-oh. I'm not wearing green, but no one here is going to pinch me. The only pinching I
2: want is the pinch associated with the administration of the vaccine.
3: Always comes back to the vaccine Good lord
0: with your segues Would you like a St. Patty's Day vaccine, Ben? Sure I, I, I would take it dyed green
3: I would really like a shamrock shake from McDonald's right now Now that we're talking about it <laughs> If McDonald's <laughs> wanted to sponsor this podcast And give me a shamrock shake I would drink I'm it we- I'm not wearing green, actually Really? Yeah, I did Am I the only did- one? I dressed my kids, so I wanted to dress the kids in something like, you know, sort of St. Patrick's Day, but all our daughter had was like a short sleeve shirt with a sequined shamrock on it, So and awesome. it's cold here today, so I like put it over another shirt. There you so go. So she has like a very sort of like drunk leprechaun kind of vibe <laughs> to her outfit <laughs> today. That's perfect, Susan. She's, she's, she's embracing her heritage in a big
0: way. Yeah. I'm very jealous now. I might have to get one of those myself. The shirt, not the child. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the It Was Always Russia edition. I'm Shane Harris. Uh, St. Patrick's Day, by the way, maybe it's a little known fact, is the anniversary of my start in journalism.
3: Interesting. It's my journalism
0: anniversary.
3: With a St. Patrick's Day themed story?
0: No, it's like the first journalism job I ever had. My first day reporting to work was St. Patrick's Day, 1999. I remember it because I wore a green tie to work.
2: Government executive magazine?
0: No, governing magazine. Governing magazine. I had it. Well, first it was governing, then movie line. That was fun. And then government executive, my little Hollywood foray. But yes, 22 years ago.
1: Wow.
0: Oh, I can't believe it.
1: And you still look like such a spring chicken. He's getting
0: old. Quiet you. I can't see you right now, but if I could, I would wave my finger at you. Ben. You have all the you.
3: gravitas now, an elder statesman vibe. Yeah.
0: Moisturize. Mm-hmm. Moisturize and hydrate. <laughs> you too can look like an intern at my age. <laughs> <laughs> I am here in the virtual St. Patrick's Day studio with my good friends, Ben Woodis, Tamara kaufman Woodis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. Are there any Irish among us, Susan, I guess? Are you Irish?
3: I am, although I'm only Irish on my father's side, but my husband's family is Irish from Ireland. Everybody married other Irish people. If you forget someone's name, it's probably Sean. Um, so <laughs> that's a big. That's a, it's a it's a big part of my life now, despite yeah. being a, a relatively small part of my genetic uh, composition.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't really have a lot of Irish either. I don't think. Well, there's like Scots and Welsh. I'm a mutt. I'm a I'm a, a British mutt of some kind. But I am wearing green, so I'm showing some pride today. On the podcast this week, the intelligence community issues a new report on foreign interference in the 2020 election. None came from Ireland. Does the U.S. risk a strategic error in portraying China as the as more powerful than it is? And the Biden administration struggles with security at the southern border. Let us start with election security. So we're recording on Wednesday, as usual. On Tuesday, the ODNI issued a new report, basically, I guess what we might purport to be sort of the last and final word on interference by foreign countries in the 2020 election. There was a lot in here that we had known already from news reports uh, and from official statements. <clears throat> um, notably, I guess, no surprise, Russia was the big threat here, big actor. And while it did not Mount a repeat, if you will, of its 2016 efforts with disinformation and hacking and dumping of emails. The report did talk about efforts by Russia at the with the cognizance of Vladimir Putin to basically inject propaganda and disinformation into the US political system, into the media streams. And while it doesn't identify him, it's pretty clear that the report is talking about Rudy Giuliani as sort of being patient zero for a lot of this um, disinformation that we've talked about on the podcast before, so it goes into some length about that. Susan, I want to start, though, with something that I thought was new in this report that contradicts what Trump administration officials had said at the time, namely that it was China that was the bigger threat to election security than Russia. Uh, We talked about that on the podcast as well. There was a lot of uh, skepticism, shall we say, about such claims at the time that they were made. The ODNI concludes that Beijing, quote, did not deploy interference efforts and considered but did not deploy influence efforts intended to change the outcome of the election, though notably uh, in the report, the National Intelligence Officer for Cyber gave a minority view that Beijing, quote, took at least some steps to undermine former President Trump's re-election chances, primarily through social media and official public statements and media. This, to my mind, is a pretty, I think, fairly significant, maybe even explosive correction to the record and raises a pretty profound question, which is, was the Trump administration, including John Ratcliffe, the previous DNI, and Robert O'Brien, the former national security advisor, who both talked about the China threat and portrayed it as more significant than Russia, were they trying to mislead the American people about the threat that Russia posed in order to help Trump get reelected? What do you think?
3: Yeah, so I actually think this is sort of confirmation of... A scandal hiding in plain sight or a a scandal that was overtaken by other scandals. Um, And so actually, Jacob Schultz and I wrote an article on Lawfare about this um, in September after uh, the DHS whistleblower uh, Brian Murphy came out and said that he was directed to prioritize intelligence reporting related to China and Iran over intelligence uh, election interference intelligence reporting related to Russia. And a lot of people were sort of focused on, at the time, this narrative that the Trump administration was trying to downplay uh, sort of threats from Russia certainly was true. Um, But what what was significant in what we wrote this piece about is it actually looked as though they were trying to inflate the sense of of, of a threat from China. And around September, we really saw the Trump administration trying to push this narrative. China prefers Joe Biden. China wants Joe to win. I think, uh, you know, Trump even sort of tweeted, China, Joe, right? They really tried to to make this happen, um, And so whenever this whistle report, whistleblower report had come out back in September, um, we'd sort of noted, "Hey, this looks like real abuse of the intelligence community. This looks like uh, sort of similar to what we saw, uh, you know, during the the, the first impeachment and, uh, and Ukraine investigation and scandal. This looks like the president attempting to use the intelligence community, uh, use the powers of his office in order to smear a political opponent in order to cause some sort of political harm. And what the sort of the game they were. Trying to do was to take a sort of overstated intelligence assessment that China preferred Trump not win, full stop, and obfuscate in order to give the basis for other administration officials to then claim China is interfering in the election on behalf of Joe Biden, both to sort of both sides, the, you know, well, Russia's on one side and China's on the other. And so it all kind of, it all evens out. And also, of course, to sort of smear Joe Biden substantively. I think this is confirmation of that. That's precisely what happened. You know, I I think it's something we need to look into. Um, And as sort of the Biden administration thinks about how to restore institutions. Institutional confidence, sort of depoliticized intelligence moving forward. This is something that should get a really close look because um, it is exactly the kind of abuse that people can tell themselves is okay at the time, and it isn't okay. That's allowing technically true intelligence reporting to be drafted in a way that is intended to allow other officials to use it to mislead the American public. By the way, who picked that up? Not just Donald Trump. Robert O'Brien, national security advisor, repeatedly made these false assertions. Bill Barr went on national television, repeated these assertions. China is the bigger threat, right? This This is lying about intelligence to the American public in order to sort of, you know, Get after you know harm political opponents. That's sort of not acceptable, you know, full stop. And I think it actually really does merit, uh, you know, kind of further investigation. Um, you know, like you said, there's there's not much else that's really surprising or revelatory in uh, sort of in this document. And I think the biggest sort of question for me, apart from kind of the the, the ongoing questions about you know the China intelligence reporting, is is this going to be a normal thing now? Like after every election, are we going to have a report that's released that sort of describes who did what from each country with some level of detail? Is is this kind of part of our strategic name and shame posture moving forward? Kind of where are we at? Or is this the end of sort of the, the final chapter in the Trump election interference kind of kind of book? So I, that's, I think, the biggest sort of outstanding question that I have.
2: Ben. So I I really agree with Susan's contention that this is something that we need a retroactive look at. I also agree that the question that she poses, whether this is a thing we're going to do now in the future, do a sort of early year after action report from the IC, is an interesting one. And I have a proposed answer to that question, which is yes. Yes. Uh, The ICA in 2017 was an extremely salutary document, and this one is useful as well. And I think it isn't a crazy thing at all, as long as we have legitimate fears of foreign interference by major actors to expect the intelligence community to have something to say about that assuming that it can say it in a useful, non-classified form that is actually evocative. Now, on the point, on Susan's main point, I really think the danger here is that we are going to develop an expectation that when a democratic government is in power, the DNI will basically come out and say, uh, Russia uh, was the main actor. And when Republicans are in power, we'll have the DNI who comes out and says the opposite, uh, or China was, or whoever, and that these things become a politically convenient thing. Now, I happen to believe, and I think the evidence really supports in this case, the idea that one side is telling the truth and the other side is is actively misrepresenting intelligence. But I do think that it is a pretty dangerous thing to have a kind of back and forth where our in our assessment of which countries are interfering happens to coincide with the political convenience of the party in power and so i i do think the answer to susan's question is yes, this is what we're going to have in the future and it should be what we're going to have in the future. But like everything else that Trump touches, what happened in this instance and is well worth a retrospective look seems to suggest that whatever he touches, he corrupts. And I think that's a very dangerous thing for something this important.
1: So I also think that it's worth um, spending a minute on the two big categories in this report, interference and influence, right? Um, Because when we think about what do we want practice to be going forward um, and how do we combat interference and influence, well, the defensive strategies are very different for interference and for influence, right? And for influence, one of the really important defensive strategies is to expose it in real time during the campaign and you can't just wait and do an after action report. And I think that 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 actually magnifies the risk or the danger that Ben was just describing about, you know, how how much will Americans of different political stripes trust intelligence community assessments by one administration when it's running for reelection or, you know, worried about its opponents or whatever. And I don't think there's any way to design an intelligence report like this that escapes that danger. But I do think that it will be increasingly important for the intelligence community to show its work in order to demonstrate the credibility of its assessment. And that means maybe pressure to make more public more of the basis for its assessments and to do that before the election and not just after.
3: So I think that's actually a really important point because I I always have sort of an instinctual opposition to this idea that the intelligence community should just be dumping lots and lots of information that has real costs that um, the American public and and American politicians tend not to appreciate. But I think sort of Tammy's point about to the extent that the, um, the sort of the inoculation strategy is the real time sharing of information. And so the expectation is not the we're going to have, uh, you know, lots and lots of new information, but instead sort of the aggregation and validation of information that was made public over time with the idea that we're sort of, we're creating a cycle and that that's going to like uh, reinforce and and restore confidence over time by saying, okay, this information is shared in real time because it's important as sort of a a protective educational function. Um, And then there's going to be this after action that kind of aggregates it and also shares enough to sort of be validating, even sort of outside outside the immediate moment of political consequence. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting uh, sort of way to think about it. Um, you know, the other thing that I, I think is really that is significant about this report, even though it's not new information, is that um, Russia did not in any way target election infrastructure. Um, now, we heard that in the days immediately following the election, which was significant at the time, especially as we were in the sort of contested election period. But, you know, it, it sometimes it takes time to discover those things. And so it actually is significant for the U.S. government to be making this statement, you know, five and. Six months later, like this, this really was uh, they did they didn't cross this line because that does say something that for all of um sort of Donald Trump's efforts to undermine the work of federal agencies while he was Commander in Chief, it worked right. They attempted to draw these lines on don't touch election infrastructure. If you come after voting systems, there will be consequences. They will be significant. You know, I, I think there was a real fear that Russia might say, "Hey, this is perfect. This is a place in which." which." which we can just, we don't even have to succeed. We just have to create forensic uncertainty. And then all the disinformation and sort of propaganda can be built on top of that. And the fear of how destructive that might be. I think it does validate the notion that having these really clear lines actually does appear to change sort of the the calculus of our adversary, because I I think there was real suspicion that Russia might otherwise want to pursue that path.
0: It also makes me think, though, too, like, okay, maybe they learned the lesson there, but then how do we explain solar winds, right? Do they look at that and say, oh, different category. And that may be the answer too. I mean, yeah. you very rightly point out, and Ben, you had Dmitry Alperovich on the Lawfare podcast this week talking about how do we start setting these boundaries to make it clear to an adversary, in this case, principally Russia, like these are lines that you cannot cross. If you do, we're going to respond to it. And, you know, my thought of this kind of coming away from it is that these, you know, they have to be taken each one sort of individually and in that you're drawing lines in lots of different places. And it's not just all the cyber any more than it's just all the espionage. Um, and that's right. a great point, Susan. I mean, you kind of make clear, like, look, you touch the election infrastructure, we're coming for you. The disinformation stuff is not going to get as much of a response. This other thing we consider categorically different. And you have to make good on that response then to, to, to show them that that's different.
2: And just one one point on that, you know, what Russia is basically accused of doing is funneling a bunch of disinformation through Dirk and ultimately Rudy Giuliani.
0: And Ron Johnson. Yeah. And (laughs) And, and,
2: And that stuff is, I think you can make a pretty good argument, is a demand side problem more than it is a supply side problem. That is, The fundamental problem here is not that Russia wanted to dish dirt on Hunter Biden. The fundamental problem is that people close to the president wanted to help Russia dig. And everybody knew in real time what was happening. And, you know, the the problem was that a group of unscrupulous people uh, on behalf of the president, including his personal lawyer and an allied senator, we're willing to play ball with what was clearly a foreign intelligence influence operation. That's not really on Russia. That's kind of on Trump.
3: <laughs> Look, although a, a brief but related point, uh, we have to get sort of back to the pre-Trump place where the notion of an adversary interfering in an election you know, to harm one candidate is not used as a basis to criticize the other candidate, right? This idea that somehow countries can, uh, you know, fuel this this sort of domestic political debate by interfering in an election and that becoming a liability, like that's not how things used to be. It used to be that we all rejected, uh, you know, foreign interference. That candidates would say, "We don't care who they're, uh, you know, whether they're working on our behalf or uh, or on our our opponent's behalf." Like we reject. In principle, we aren't going to benefit from it. We aren't going to tolerate it. We have sort of a, you know, a united front and, uh, you know, commitments like the, that come before politics here. And so also this is a place in which, you know, Democrats can be part of the solution here by avoiding the temptation to sort of start playing this game of, well, X country, you know, really wants that guy to win. And that shows that his policies are favorable to X and, he, you know, that, the, you know, he or she is in their pocket. And so it's a really tempting path to walk down, especially with, you know, the, the, the country so primed to receive that information. But I do think it's incumbent on both parties to resist walking down that path, which is the thing that fuels all of the rest of this. Yeah. Be best guys. Come on, yeah. just be oh. nice to each other.
0: Be based Be base. Uh Well, uh, as we said, a number of former administration officials portrayed China as the big threat.
1: Oh man, you really sounded like him when you said that just now.
0: Did I? China. I didn't even mean to.
1: It was kind of scary, actually.
0: I think it's been imprinted. I think I have. Like, I'm still getting over it. I kind of think I have PTSD a little bit. Not to minimize that, but like, seriously, I'm I'm having a long hangover from the Trump administration. It's just it is just a fact. I feel you. But the temptation, more than the temptation, the portrayal of China as the number one strategic threat uh, is not only a bipartisan activity and impulse. Uh, there is a, a clear pattern of not only saying that China is our big threat, but that there is essentially very little that we can do to counter them and that China has so many more strategic advantages than the United States that we can sometimes exhaust ourselves trying to count them. Enter a really interesting essay by Ryan Haas from Brookings, which ran in foreign affairs earlier this month, from a book that he just has out from Yale University Press, I think called China Is Not 10 Feet Tall, How Alarmism Undermines American Strategy. Um, And I'll just kind of read a paragraph here that is the crux of his argument. Uh, He says, authoritarian systems excel at showcasing their strengths and concealing their weaknesses, but policymakers in Washington must be able to distinguish between the image Beijing presents and the realities it confronts. China is the second most powerful country in the world and the most formidable competitor in the United States has faced in decades, Yet at the same time, and in spite of its many visible defects, the United States remains stronger, a stronger power in the U.S.-Chinese relationship, and it has good reason to think that it can stay that way. For all the obstacles facing the United States, those facing China are considerably greater. And he goes on to detail them, including uh, an aging population, an increasingly less productive one, uh, uh, you know, the ways in which basically um, China has long-term uh, internal and international challenges of its own that by no means uh, are 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 trivial and necessarily easy to overcome and that in the long run might actually put them at a greater disadvantage. So Tammy, I thought this was just like this really interesting counterpoint to I think that you know, I hate the word, but the narrative <laughs> that has <laughs> kind of taken hold that China is not only our top strategic adversary but that, you know, basically has so much going for it in its drive to eclipse the United States economically, militarily, strategically. I'm curious what you made of of Haas's argument. And are we making China 10 feet tall when really it's not?
1: Yeah. I mean, first, full disclosure, Ryan is a colleague and a friend and uh, someone whose analysis on China I admire greatly. I think this is a really important article both for the um, laying out of those factors that you mentioned, Shane, that may well constrain China's power and influence, but also for the corrective that it poses to, you know, what he terms alarmism, what I would say is a kind of mobilizing narrative that we see in both parties and in lots of different parts of the U.S. government about, you know, the need to to win Uh, some battle for power with China. And, you know, Ryan talks about, he doesn't only talk about the constraints on Chinese power, he also details what he sees as the dangers of alarmism about China. And I think that gets to something really important. He says, concentrating on China's strengths without accounting for its vulnerabilities creates anxiety. Anxiety breeds insecurity. Insecurity leads to overreaction an overreaction produces bad decisions that undermine the United States' own competitiveness. And, you know, some of that is just the classic international relations security dilemma, that if you overreact to threats, you can actually make yourself more threatened. Um, But some of it is a really fundamental argument about the need for American foreign policy to prioritize shoring up the foundations of American power rather than responding to the shiny new threats being presented by China as a rising power. And of course, if you are part of the Pentagon strategic planning process, or if you're in the defense industry, or the tech industry, or you know anywhere in the national security complex, it's more exciting and maybe even more lucrative to make the argument to Congress that we need you know, a lot of new resources to do shiny new things and reach new horizons to compete with the Chinese who are already reaching for that horizon themselves. Quantum computing, right? Whatever. But the fact is that America's national power comes from its own roots and sources. So it's not just about countering their power it's about shoring up our own and that's Ryan's fundamental argument here which goes back to a conversation we had on the podcast a few weeks ago about you know foreign policy for the middle class i think part of the point ryan's making here is that you know successful competition abroad means being strong at home and that means we need to look at some of the things about our foreign policy that affect the american economy and affect american livelihoods like you know, he mentions in here, for example, that one of our natural advantages is that we te- we have the best educational system in the world and we at- attract the best and brightest talents in the world to the United States. Well, if we don't fix our H-1B visa problem that Trump created for us, we're not going to be able to keep attracting the best and the brightest. So there are some, if you will, foreign policy for the middle class or foreign policy and domestic policy are, you know interdependent points here. I think the, the one danger of alarmism that Ryan doesn't address in this essay, but that I think it's really important to keep in mind as well, is what it does to America's public perceptions, Americans' public perceptions about China and more broadly about Asians. And Trump's hyping of China as a threat to distract from his own failures led to a huge spike in anti-Asian violence in this country and hate crimes in this country over the last year. And that's that's been very strongly documenting. Last night, we had this horrific mass shooting in Atlanta. We don't yet know precisely what the motivations were for the perpetrator of that violence, but eight people, almost all of whom are Asian American, are dead today because of it. And so I think that in that way, too, we have to think about how foreign policy is domestic policy and domestic policy is foreign policy. And we shouldn't be creating this kind of alarmism in the public.
3: Yeah, so I, I, look, I, I think it's a it's a really interesting and provocative essay. And I do wonder, um, you know, to what extent a little bit it, it channels some of the sensibilities of, you know, Jake Sullivan and other people who are in the National Security Council now. Um, uh, you know, Ryan previously served um, on the National Security Council under Obama. And so, you know, I, I do think this is sort of insight into that thinking. I, I really take the point on uh, sort of pushing back on this idea that um, the end of history was wrong and this notion that we had this great model. Model and we were going to double, you know, it was so attractive to everybody else. And it was this kind of, you know, self-perpetuating thing. Um, you know, the right, over the past four and five years, I, I think there's been real panic. I've heard it from people sort of saying, you know, the Chinese model is uh, you know, it is appealing and look, you know, coronavirus shows how appealing it is. And, uh, you know, this is sort of a legitimate competitor. And, and I do think that it's right to sort of push back on that and say, all right, like, hold on a minute. You, you might be sort of getting ahead of yourself here. Um, and I, I think there are concrete ways that, um, that's happening as well, you know, even sort of in specific things. Right. So we hear about, um, you know, China has uh, 20,000 AI patents for every one U.S. Uh, you know artificial intelligence patent. Yeah. Like quantity versus quality. Right. Like there's I, I think there's um, there's a, a tendency to sort of want to overstate without really sort of wading into the nuance, especially in an environment in which we've been in, in sort of a rhetoric based foreign policy for a really long time where it's sort of our two political parties competing for who is tougher and tried to claim the title of toughness uh, on a foreign policy issue that is about a combination of, uh, of sort of cooperation and competition and, and is going to require some degree of collaboration. Um, that said, you know, I, I do think that there are places in which, you know, this, this is something we should be taking seriously. And um, some of the kind of table pounding and alarmism we've seen over the past couple of years, I think, is the national security community and the intelligence community saying this isn't getting enough attention. Um, they're not saying this is the only threat. This is an existential threat. They're saying this is a significant threat that's getting sort of pushed out with a focus on Russia. We, we, sort of, it, it's not getting its due, especially whenever we think sort of in the counterintelligence space and the cyberspace. Uh, you know, certainly sort of the post the Xi agreement or the decline of the Xi agreement, uh, you know, as we were seeing China being more and more, uh, you know, sort of aggressive in that space. That's something sort of significant to grapple with. You know, there's also places in which, like, We really are in a race. You know, Tammy mentioned kind of quantum. I don't think we're on a, um, you know, five year, 10 year timeline. But I I do think that there's a real argument that um, the first country to genuine quantum computing is going to Gain uh, like an an exponential advantage, and it's going to be basically impossible for competitors to catch up, and and that that's a real animating concern. There are productive ways to respond to that by, um, or, or there are non productive ways to respond to that, like this sort of cycle of overreaction and risk. But there's also productive ways by saying, okay, you know, what are sort of the the core strategic goals here, and how can we put that to really important problems? So you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna be the first to quantum. Um, you know, we need a big problem to solve—a big global problem that's productive, that's going to get every part of the world, and academia, and national security. Huh? <laughs> if only we had an existential threat to our planet right now that we might use to spur genuine innovation and like large-scale investment. So, I, on one hand, I, I think it's really provocative. I think it's um, it's it's really healthy to sort of start clarifying the conversations in these terms that said i do think that there's a reason to be concerned and I, and i also think that a little bit it might mischaracterize people who are saying china is not getting enough attention the threat is not being taken seriously enough with fear-mongering or saying, you know, this is the only threat or, or or sort of overstatement because, of course, people who don't think their issue is getting sufficient attention um, tend to engage in hyperbole because that's how you get, you know, sort of uh, the limited resources for the thing that you care about.
2: So I... Tammy and I are are just old enough to have memories as teenagers of the last period of time that the United States had genuine fear of a country achieving real military parity with us. And that was, of course, the early Reagan administration fear that the Soviet Union had a substantial military advantage in Europe and that we were kind of behind, right? And I remember these graphs we used to see of the number of Soviet tanks in Europe versus the number of tanks, uh, Western uh, American tanks and, you know, missiles. And uh, of course, those concerns look quite silly in retrospect, um, given how quickly the Soviet Union fell apart. And You know, at some level, Ryan's piece is merely emphasizing different aspects of what we all understand to be the terms of the debate. So if you had said to any reasonable analyst before this piece, hey, we all, you know, what are China's strengths? People would have listed the same factors: huge population, you know underdeveloped economy developing very, very rapidly over a very long shockingly long period of time, lift lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, immense productive capacity, et cetera, military modernization very fast. But if you'd said, "Well, hey, what are the weaknesses?" people would have said, "Wow, you know, not enough women, population aging." remarkably quickly because of the one child policy. They have no allies around the world. They're confined. They're still encircled in a meaningful sense. They've got, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, to a very large degree, this essay is merely trying to shift the emphasis a little bit that says, hey, we know we all know what the factors are. And the question is the question is how do you weight them in terms of your sort of, you know, how alarmed to be. Now, having lived through the Soviet Union and its late stage and decline, I'm very disinclined to believe any 10-foot tall tales about authoritarian regimes that look like they are unstoppable in, in any material respect. I think they're always more brittle than they look, And we actually have a lot of lived experience of these regimes look super, super stable until the moment that they don't. And I think that's actually something that I really believe and have a lot of faith in. That said, I also don't believe that China is the Soviet Union. It's a much more adaptable system than the Soviet Union proved to be. It does have, in, in a way, that the Soviet Union was underpopulated uh, and therefore actually lacked human resources in, for important purposes. The Chinese are the opposite. They have these just immense numbers of bodies to throw at problems. And if you listen to Chris Ray's recent testimony about Chinese counterintelligence you know he says we've never faced anything like it just the number of different vectors of attack that we're experiencing you know and i think that's you hear that in the cyber area and lots of other areas as well and and i do think that their productive capacity is an awesome awesome challenge and so i guess i'm sympathetic always to the reminders from people like ryan hey this is a society with major weaknesses. But I also think he's not denying any of the premises of the people who were super alarmed. And so it, it's not a situation where he's sort of calling bullshit on conventional wisdom. It's a situation in which everybody agrees there's a balance of of uh, alarming and and not alarming factors about China. And it's really a question of which ones you emphasize at any given time where that balance sits.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, he's not doing a threat assessment. He's doing a net assessment, and that's good, and that's important. But I think that in so doing, there are very important policy implications that come out of doing the net assessment rather than merely the threat assessment. And he makes them clear, which is that, you know, competing with China isn't just about blocking threats. It's about exploiting vulnerabilities and strengthening our own sources of power. So it's a completely different strategy that emerges from a net assessment. And that's why it's an important corrective.
0: All right. Well, closer to home, We've got our own problems to deal with. At the southern border, uh, Secretary Mayorkas actually is he still testifying as we speak or did he finish speaking? I think speak? so. Yeah, the Homeland Security Secretary is testifying and said, I'll just quote here from my colleague's coverage of this. Said this morning at the hearing that he described an, quote, undoubtedly difficult situation at the U.S. Mexico border in testimony. Testified the Biden administration is working around the clock to address an influx of migrants crossing into the country, including record numbers of teens and children who are arriving without their parents. Uh, Mallorca said, quote, we are also encountering many unaccompanied children, children who arrive without a parent or a legal guardian. Their families made the heart-wrenching decision to send them on a journey across Mexico to provide them with a better and safer future. Mallorca said DHS is mobilizing FEMA uh, to help extend capacity to shelter the overnumber, overwhelming number of minors in government custody. Uh, and the family groups are arriving, and growing numbers continue to be returned to Mexico under a Trump-era public health order. So, Ben, Biden obviously has struck a politically polar opposite tone when it comes to security at the border, I think largely trying to focus on the humanitarian aspects of it from Trump. Uh, And I mean, that wouldn't be hard to do, given the images that we had of children separated from their families and in cages and the things that we all remember so well that were just incredibly shocking and painful and provocative. At the same time, people are still coming. I think it seems like little doubt that that's in part because they understand the current administration is taking a more tolerant or a more accommodating stance at the border, particularly with regards to children. So what do we intuit here about the Biden administration's policy with regards to what's going on at the southern border? Is there a policy or are they sort of improvising here?
2: I think there is not yet a policy, and there is a certain amount of improvisation going on. Uh, You know, this is a situation in which the relevant agencies don't yet have uh, full political leadership, and so it is actually pretty difficult to develop long-term policy when you basically have actings below the secretary level at, you know, just about everywhere right now, Look, there are several factors that contribute to this. One is that it's spring and, you know, it's uh, you know, a different season these things tend to heat up as the weather gets warmer. The second factor is the one you mentioned. You know, the migrant world is not one of, you know, high information news consumers. It's one where you know, the idea, uh, the the rumor or the knowledge that the United States has a new administration that is, you know, not the Trump administration gets filtered through a lot of word of mouth. And, you know, turns out to reflect to a lot of people that this is a propitious time to to try it, uh, even though, of course, Joe Biden has said very little that would give somebody reason to think that. Look, this is an area where there is, on the political left, a denialism about the scope of the problem that you risk creating if you don't have a policy that actually says what the circumstances in which people can and can't come into the country are over this particular border. The numbers can generate very quickly. And if your policy is as has been true for a lot of people on the left simply to oppose restrictionism it does suggest that you're going to tolerate a lot of influx and you know i don't think the center of the democratic party is going to do that but you also have to reject what the last administration did and that sets up a very very difficult problem which is When large numbers of people show up uh, who may have very weak asylum claims, who may be underage, who may be uh, not accompanied, what the heck do you do? And that is a there is no simple answer to that question. And Biden and Harris did not propose anything useful during the campaign other than to not do what Donald Trump has done, which, by the way, is a good starting place, but it actually doesn't answer the question of what you're going to do. That is going to be something they're going to have to figure out now. And uh, it's going to take a while. And while they are figuring it out, large numbers of people are going to show up and that is going to create a political vulnerability for them. And so And by the way, it's a political vulnerability that's going to hurt them on both sides from, you know, the Fox News ecosystem is going to see the numbers of people who are showing up and the left-wing supporters are going to see the conditions in which you have to detain people assuming you are simply not going to let them walk into the country and, you know, go to wherever they want to go. And so you end up with a policy... De facto policy that actually has, you know, satisfies nobody. And it's going to be a very hard problem for them.
1: So I don't disagree with anything Ben said, but I do think it's important to call bullshit on the argument of the Fox News crowd that Biden created a wave of migrants at the border by loosening policy. There has been relentless demand for migration into the United States, mainly from Central America, although some of the folks that are coming are are coming from very far away and coming through Central America and Mexico to the southern border. There is pent up demand because people are terrified because there are countries uh, in our near neighborhood where people are experiencing extreme repression and horrific organized crime and poverty. And also because of the way Trump dealt with this issue, there is pent up demand of people who have been waiting for years before trying to cross the border. So Biden did not create this problem. If anything, Trump has created the exacerbation of of the problem that we see now. That's point one. Point two, I think is, look, if people are moving, from their homes or sending their minor children from their homes across hundreds of miles of territory to the U.S. border because they have a well-founded fear of persecution and they hope that the United States will offer them asylum, that is as it should be. Um, we should be adjudicating asylum claims. That is our international responsibility. It is our moral responsibility. It's part of our basic civic culture that we welcome the repressed and persecuted. That's how we build our country. So I, I don't have a problem with that. And I think that it would be nice if that were a more proactive part of the narrative. But I think it also obviously emphasizes the need to address the causes of these migrant flows, whether those causes are economic dysfunction or political repression or international organized crime. And by the way, the Trump administration also exacerbated those problems in Central America by slashing aid and not giving a crap about human rights. So, I mean, there are a lot of things the Biden administration needs to do to address this challenge. But I don't I mean, I understand the, the domestic political narrative, but I just don't think this is a huge problem for the United States of America in national security terms. It is it is a manageable problem and asylum is part of what we do.
3: Yeah, so I certainly agree with all of that. Um I do think though it's um, it's useful to sort of think about the Agency and party dynamics at play here. DHS is still a sort of new thing, which feels weird to say about something that's more than 20 years old or about 20 years old at this point. But whenever we think about the dynamics of an agency that was created under George W. Bush and then we saw the Obama administration come in. And, and sort of try and define what it meant to be and what DHS was under a democratic administration under sort of a set of assumptions. Um, and then we had the transition to the Trump administration and now it's back to Biden. And so this is really the first time that we're sort of seeing like the handover from a democratic administration to a democratic administration. And what are the points of continuity and what are the places in which um, kind of the ground has shifted in the intervening years? Um, and, and I do think we're seeing a few things um, one is certainly the kind of progressive shift on, shift on the issues that um, that that Ben is uh, referring to. But at the same time, I think we're also seeing a recognition that a core bargain or compromise or strategy of the Obama administration was trying to give congressional Republicans very strong immigration enforcement in order to get other things, right? That was sort of the trade, like he was going to be really um, a sort of aggressive in, uh, in in immigration enforcement in order to bring them to the table on other issues. And, and I think we can say that that didn't work very well. It actually didn't produce uh, the compromises or, or the sort of substantive policy outcomes that that administration thought it might. Um, and so sort of the, the recalibration of that strategy um, and that that's playing out against this DHS doing nine hundred different missions, right? We mentioned solar winds earlier, right? The cyber mission, the homeland security mission, all of the immigration mission, um, right? All of not just immigration enforcement, but you know, uh, sort of visa processing, right? All, all sort of the security features, and so you know, I, I think one thing that um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Biden administration fervently hopes that they can devote less DHS resources to the immigration question because there are so many really other important things. FEMA, right, places that the Trump administration had basically made immigration DHS's sole mission and wanting to rebalance it, right, and wanting to sort of define it. Um, And I I do think that this is a little bit of an example of, one, the quite complex sort of political factors here. And also the fact that it's not going to be so easy to get out of this. And, And once you're the agency that's like doing all this work. These are hard questions. It takes a ton of time to, inf- like, just the administrative and personnel issues. And so how are you going to solve sort of an, uh, a really complex issue while also trying to get those resources back to where they were before to prioritize other issues within the context of this like behemoth agency that's doing 900 things and is hungry for more, right? Give us election security, give us everything. I, I think those, I-, I think we're starting to see the undercurrents of that really bubble up in sort of in, in issue specific ways.
2: So I actually disagree with Tamara's formulation of this, and I want to use it to uh, flesh out a little bit the point I was making about sort of liberal denialism on what's going on at the southern border.
1: Oh, I'm a liberal denialist. Well, on on this,
2: your comments (laughs) reflect, I think, liberal denialism. So you're a heartless hardliner. I'm a heartless words. hardliner. Actually, I'm not. I, I, but here's the problem. So tomorrow's point. Hey, we're we we're obligated by treaty to do you know uh, asylum claims and and to adjudicate those. People show up, and you know we know how to do this. There's no crisis. I, I think is you know every part of it is right, and yet it leads to somewhere that's wrong. First of all, about 90% of the asylum claims that we're adjudicating uh, are denied, which means that a very small, you know, now that can be for one of two reasons, either because our standards are too high for granting asylum, or because a lot of these people are not actually coming with valid asylum claims, however you would want to define them. But there's only one way around that. If you want to be very inclusive and not detain people at the border which is allow more people in if you do that you will a well, i mean 30,000 people have shown up already and many more will come if you immediate if 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 you start doing that if you are not going to do that and the political appetite to dramatically lower our asylum standards simply isn't there right in this country If you're not going to do that, realistically, you are going to be holding people for some period of time while you're adjudicating their claims, unless you're going to parole large numbers of them in. And even if you do that, you're going to be holding them in some camps for some periods of time before the initial screening. And so I don't see a way around one of two things either. You're dramatically lowering the standards, or you're doing some kind of thing like the Trump administration did, like a remain in Mexico policy, which I don't think is a good idea, or you are detaining people for certain, sometimes protracted periods of time. Now, which one of these is going to be politically popular? The answer is none. They're, they all suck. And so this idea that you can simply say, well, we know how to do asylum, uh, just ramp up you know, resources to adjudicate asylum plans and the problem will go away, or it's a manageable thing. I just don't think that's true. I think you're dealing here with some very hard choices that are going to be politically unpopular and are going to be logistically very difficult. And by the way, are probably gonna involve holding some people in conditions that we are not comfortable with, no matter how you do it, at least until you can get a policy in place and make some choices and provide resources to the agencies in order to conduct that.
0: All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I will go first. Uh, I'm going to flag a book this week for readers, well, for listeners, soon to be readers. I think most of our listeners know how to read, I'm guessing.
3: That preschool set of rational security (laughs) listeners.
0: Indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, Spymaster's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression. Uh, This is a book by uh, Jack Devine, who was a longtime operations official, very senior guy in the CIA. Uh, has written a previous book that's more of a memoir called Good Hunting. Um, But this is actually, he's he's in private uh, intelligence now. It's kind of a look back at Russia through the lens of, as he puts it, a spy master, which he was, i.e. somebody who manages assets and agents in another country. And he starts with this, the premise of the book, which I find very persuasive, and I should say I happen to agree with, full disclosure, is that um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and particularly after 9-11, the CIA in some ways took its eyes off of Russia and lost a lot of the competency that it had, um, which was probably never quite as formidable as the movies would make you think when it came to assessing the Russian threat and understanding Russia. And he makes the case both for how this was ultimately, you know, a perilous set of decisions uh, leading us up to 2016 and the election interference, but also kind of being less equipped to deal with all manner of Russian aggression around the world uh, and then tries to be somewhat uh, prescriptive about how you counter that. Uh, so it's inter- you know it's a, a an insider kind of account. It comes at a time when we're talking about great power competition again, uh, and you know it's got some pretty good uh, spy anecdotes in it. So check it out, Spy Master's Prism by Jack Devine.
2: Ben, your object. My object lesson relates to a phone call that I received or a text message I received about six months ago at seven in the morning from one Shane Harris. What? So I got out of bed. It was sometime in, I think on July 30th, maybe, and looked at my phone and there was a text from Shane Harris that said- On my birthday. Call me immediately. And so I called Shane and he informed me that there were two DHS- Intelligence and Analysis Office intelligence reports filed about me. And listeners may remember that this began a string of events that led to the sacking of the head of the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. The apology by then acting, not acting person behaving like the person who is acting as the Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf.
0: Best title
2: ever. And last week, I filed a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security to try to uncover as much information as I can about the circumstances, policies, and decisions that led to, A, the intelligence reporting about me and Mike Baker of the New York Times, and B, and from my point of view, more importantly, the many Portland and other protesters whom I suspect were subject of similar intelligence reporting based entirely on their First Amendment protected activities. Uh, I do not know for sure that these material exist, but I FOIA'd them over the course of, I guess, in November, and DHS has not yet even, I don't think they've even acknowledged receipt of the FOIA request. And so uh, last week, I went to court, and I am hoping that a new administration that may not be particularly invested in the illegal surveillance activities of its predecessors, uh, may finally answer the question that Shane and I were uh, batting about this morning, which is, what the fuck is going on? So uh, that's my object lesson, is my new lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security, uh, and I will, of course, keep you posted about anything that comes in.
3: Shane, I would like us to enter into a pact of mutually assured destruction that we will never use one another's text messages to each other as entering them into the object lesson record. Just <laughs> overall. Because um, whenever Ben said I got, a sh- I got a text from Shane, I was like, oh, God, was I on it? What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> so let's just, you know,
0: <laughs> I think let's we can all agree, agree. on that. Yeah. We're shutting it next down.
2: Project next lesson is going to be a text from Zachary Frank. Of <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's like, oh shit. <laughs> nah, he does not look nervous. He does not look nervous. He looks grateful because it's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Um, you too can get Ben to sue you if you send a text to sue me, Ben 2020. Uh no.
1: <laughs> he gave up. He gave up in the middle. I mean, he like, even do we it. can't even like this is so far
2: from merch that it's incomprehensible to the listener.
3: There is an appetite for anything on the internet. Yes. Yeah, file your
1: own FOIA lawsuit. Oh,
0: here. that's what you should do. You should do like legal yeah. zoom for FOIA.
3: Yeah.
0: Ben's like not a bad idea. Look yeah, at this.
1: You like there, it. there
2: are still a few federal government employees who have not been reprogrammed to doing FOIA response work. Oh mean, you can fix that.
0: Yeah, totally. You see, it's a whole new line of business for you right after your podcast about that French show, you can get right on it. Oh, you can find us on Twitter at RATL security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a, right, a rating and a review. It helps others find the show. And we appreciate all the love. Our audio engineer this week is, of course, Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr, Robert O'Brien, and John Ratcliffe with their new trio, 10 Feet Small. (laughs) Okay. Good.
3: It's
0: kind of fun, right? Do they do like Irish jigs?
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're they're like the uh, Shamrock Bangra group. Have you seen them?
3: They're an improv oh. troupe that just makes shit up as they go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and they do accents badly. Oh my god. Barr yeah.
2: plays the bagpipes.
0: Oh no. I think well, wait, Sophia, doesn't
2: he really? No, he, he really does. does play the bagpipes, yeah. yes.
0: Sophia Yan's gonna have to play extra loud to drown that out. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Tomorrow Coffin Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Have a happy St. Patrick's Day.